It is Valentine's Day, uh, this national holiday of romantic love. And uh, so we are taking the occasion to talk on this subject here on this Valentine's Day. And uh, so an entire message on love and romance, just to get you all in the mood for uh, Valentine's Day today. It begins very young in our culture, at least it did for me, maybe for you. I remember when I was uh, first grade, kindergarten, that uh, on Valentine's Day it was uh, accepted and was expected that we would show up and to have little Valentines for each of our classmates. And you had to have one for everybody because everybody, nobody could be left out. So you couldn't have like a special one. It had to be the same for everybody. And uh, back in that day, I don't know if these are still popular, but back in that day, they had these little candy hearts that would have a little saying on them of some kind. And you had to be very careful which heart you put in which, you know, envelope and the name and uh, scandal could erupt in the class if the wrong heart, you know, be my Valentine to, you know, the first grade drug addict guy or something. So uh, you had to carefully select which one went where and uh, that was a big deal. That was always a big deal uh, for me growing up. Romance uh, for children and love is portrayed, I think, most commonly in uh, like Disney movies as being a, uh, a rush of overwhelming emotions and feelings. And we find this, of course, in these stories, often princes and princesses, where, you know, love is... Uh, about and the songs are about this love for the ages and love that conquers um, everything and pirates and evil spells and all the rest. Love is sunsets and love is happily ever after. And our children are taught this implicitly through entertainment that that's what love is. And then they become now teenagers. And when you think about what is portrayed to teenagers as being actually love and romance, it is a very idealized and a very sexualized perspective. Romantic love in popular culture, teenage popular culture, is an all-consuming, furious emotion and must, of course, lead the main characters inexorably towards the bedroom for an experience that is so celestial and so rapturous as to define all reality. And this will take bizarre turns, like with werewolves, but I digress. <laughs> so the child in our culture, and I would have to say even within our church, is taught from a very early age that love is romantic that real love is emotional, that real love is intense feelings, and that those emotions and feelings are the proper foundation for a relationship that rides off into the sunset and lasts happily ever after. Think about girls today and all of the emphasis upon the wedding, this one moment where all your life, you've dreamed about being the princess, and it's your day to be the princess. And the whole gala and all of that has to somehow communicate that the love that this, 
20-year-old couple is experiencing is the most passionate, the most amazing, the most uh, transformational love that two lovers have ever experienced in all of human history. If you make it to your wedding night as virgins, that night of passion will alter all reality. Time will stop. Ocean tides will pause. The tectonic plates of the earth will move. The universe itself will be changed, for such is the power of romantic and sexual love. Now, I got carried away with that last part there, but you see what I'm getting at where here we are talking about romance and love, and I, I feel like DeWitt is Dutch, so I feel like the Dutch boy with his finger in the dike where, and it's just, there's just this tsunami that has, is constantly hitting the minds and the hearts of our homes that is trying to communicate that all of life is most importantly experienced as a romantic feeling or as a sexual experience. And so I am going to try here to let the Bible, as best I can in one message, there's shelves of books on this, and I'm not going to even begin to touch on everything, but I'm going to try to describe romantic love biblically. And it's going to sound to some of you like I'm being sacrilegious in what I'm saying. But I'm, it sounds that way because in our culture, they have deified romance and love and sex in such a way that to simply describe it the way the Bible describes it is like, you know, uh, casting down the very gods of our culture. And I'm not trying to be sacrilegious about romantic love or to cause romantic love to be lost. I think this is actually how it is saved. Saved as it actually is intended to be by the designer of the whole thing in the first place, which is God himself. Okay? So let's begin with the question, what is actually romantic love? And if you've come to Bethel Church for any amount of time, you know that almost always when we are on a subject or a topic, we don't begin with that subject or topic itself. We begin with God. And the reason we begin with God is the Bible makes it clear that when God created everything, he did so in order to communicate what he is like. Okay, the whole created world, God declares very good, and this includes romantic love and Adam and Eve and all the plumbing and all of that. It's all good, right? But it's not, it doesn't exist for itself that God is a God who loves sacrament and symbol. He loves little things that symbolize grand, glorious things, like the Lord's Supper, which we just got done taking, which a little piece of bread, really? What, I mean, this is symbolizing what? the body that was broken to save mankind from their sins, okay? So a little thing in the mind of God can symbolize massive things, massively important things. And in fact, everything in this world does in some way. So Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. We look up in the sky, we see stars and, and, and galaxies and clouds, but they symbolize something grander and greater. They symbolize what God is like and... and uh, Romans 1, that his divine attributes are clearly seen in what has been made so that men are without excuse. We look around the world around us, big and small, all of these things saying something about the attributes of God in a way that when we stand before God, nobody can say, you didn't say nothing to me. You didn't say nothing to me. And God's going to say, I was talking to you every single day, okay? every day. 
Isaiah 6, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Okay? So what about romantic love then? Clearly, this is part of God's design. Um, What is this reflecting? Like if this is about God, in what way? Two things to highlight for us as we think theologically, first of all, about romance is that this attractional aspect between the genders is by God's design intended to reflect the mutual commitment and celebration within the Trinity, within the Trinity. We look in the Trinity, or to say it this way, who's the most romantic person in all the world? It's not Romeo, it is God. God is the most romantic. And what I mean by that is within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, there is, at its essence, love. That's what John says. God is love. Of all the qualities that define what God is like, that agape, that caring, that tenderness, this is non-sexual, it's non-physical, because God isn't gender. He's not, he's spiritual. So we're not talking in a human category here, but the, the, the category humanly symbolizes something spiritually and doctrinally theologically true about God. And that is that within the Trinity, there is such an intimacy of care. There is such an interest in the other. There is such an affirming and loving kind of relationship within the Trinity that when God created the world and made Adam and Eve, he built into that thing, that marriage, that male-female attractional sexual thing, he built into that a power, a reality that nobody can deny. And it's there to give us a little taste, a little glimpse of how powerful the love is within the triune Godhead. The second reason that God created romance is to reflect Jesus' delight in the church. And here now we go back to Ephesians 5, we commonly do when we talk about marriage. Ephesians 5 There's this long section describing how the husband is to relate to the wife, the wife is to relate to the husband. And then you get down to verse 31, and Paul quotes that old basic description of what marriage and family is and should be. Here, I'll just read it. Here I am giving comments before I read it. Let me read it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, I want you to see something in this text. Again, he goes back to Genesis 1. If if there's a foundational verse that describes the way that God intended for man and woman to become wife, it is this passage in Genesis 1. Therefore shall a man, okay, not a boy, not a child, a man, leave the parental authority structure that has been over him his whole life, he leaves that, and there is a woman who leaves the parental structure that has been over her her whole life, she leaves that, and these two now are united into a new relationship, a new family, a new authority structure. And the text here says that the two become one. And that to become one, that one fleshness, absolutely is describing sexual unity in marriage. There is no doubt about it. So 
We look at that and sometimes the teenage boy's like, yeah, that's right, right? But teenage boy, hold on. It is so much more than that, isn't it? A marriage is so much more that dogs can unite. Marriage is the uniting of the mingling of souls, as, as one person recently wrote a book on marriage. It is the uniting of the heart, the mind, the purpose. It is a relational connection that is covenantal. It is a unity that goes far beyond the sexual and the romantic. But it definitely includes the sexual and the romantic. So we look at that then, and then you see verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to the church. This is one of these moments where you, you're like, you're reading the Bible, and you're like, whoa, I did not expect that, because Paul basically pivots, like in basketball, a pivot is when you're, you were going this way, and now you go this way. He pivots from marriage to what he's really saying this is all about, which is the nature of Christ in the church. And so we find then that marriage, like the cup and like the bread and like everything else, is a symbol, a symbol of something grander and more glorious, specifically the relationship between Jesus and the church. So how then is romantic attraction and tenderness in marriage reflected? What is that reflecting? It is reflecting, friends, get this, this is like blow your mind stuff. It is reflecting how much, how attracted, how desirous Jesus is for us. In fact, get this. Isaiah 61 describes the nature of the relationship between the Lord and his people. And he says, you want to know how the Lord feels, they use that word, for the church? It is like a bridegroom who delights in his bride. Where does the prophet go? He goes to the marital bedroom. In fact, the bridegroom would be like the first night. If you want to know how eager Jesus is for, and this is not sexual, don't get all like weirdo, there's been cults that have done that. It is a picture, but it is a powerful picture, is it not, married men? Good time to say amen. I'm going to give you some cues here, okay? Amen at the right moment now, and you don't have to buy a card. It's good, right? Because she is going to love this. I mean, here I, I just got married three and a half years ago, okay? This is still a vivid memory in my mind. When I left the wedding ceremony and the party with Jennifer, bye, mom and dad, bye, see you later, not calling tonight, nope. When I left there with Jennifer, she'll tell you, actually, she read this, but I didn't include this in what she read in advance, so. <laughs> but where we went, there was one way that we, you could go where occasionally there will be an accident. It's not the safest road in the whole world. I didn't go that way. I went the secure, secu what's the word? I went the roundabout way. Because I didn't, at that point, I'm like, I am not letting anything get in the way of us getting together. I wanted her so bad. Okay. And you, you uh, former grooms understand that. It's such a powerful desire. And 
The Bible says it's a little picture of something grander. As much as a groom is like so wanting his bride, Jesus wants you, church, exponentially more. That's how much he loves you and desires relationship with you. Now that's a picture that connects, doesn't it? Wow. Wow. So with that, let's talk then about romantic love's place within marital love, okay? How important is this romantic love aspect of, of marriage? Like, where does it fit? And to, uh, to illustrate that here, I've got a, I've got a few things that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use here, okay? So let me pull these out a second. All right, so... I don't know if you can see on the screen. I guess you all can see. So I've got some aspects of, of what marriage is. So I've got protection. I've got romance. I've got sacrifice, covenant, okay? If I was to say, hey, why don't you come up here right now? The price is right. If you can get this right, you're going to win a new car or something. So I drag you up here and I say, okay, how, how do you think you should build the marriage? Like, if you were to build the marriage, how would you do it? And so you're looking at all these components, right? And you say, okay, well, what should be the foundation? And what should be kind of like the, at the, the, the cherry on top? Okay, so let me share with you how the Bible describes it. The foundation of marriage biblically is covenant. Okay? It's not feelings. It's not... My mom liked him. It's not his truck. It's covenant, right? Marriage is a covenant. That's why you have vows at a marriage. Covenant. Okay, so we begin with covenant. Next would be the essence of what biblical love is. Okay, which is not a feeling. It is sacrifice. How do we know that? How did Jesus love us? He gave himself up for us, right? Okay, so that agape love, that self-giving thing would be next. I would put protection or provision, different words you could use there, sort of the safety of that relationship. Okay, security would be there. And then a very important part would be romantic and sexual love, okay? You can be married like this, but that's not a biblical marriage. Biblical marriage includes this, doesn't it? Okay, now, the reason I do this is, again, I'm the Dutch boy with my my finger trying to stop the tsunami here in, in the dam, because in our culture, then, if I say, okay, how, how does popular culture communicate and teach what, how this is all supposed to go. This is not the foundation of love in our culture. This is not what the movies are saying. This is not, it, that's not even part of it, right? The culture that we live in today, the foundation is this right here. It's all about this. It is the rush of emotion. It's the rush of passion. It's that all-consuming experience that defines everything, the notebook, I Etc. So, uh, and many, many other things, right? This is the hookup culture. 
In a hookup culture like we live in, the, in college campuses, and if you've read anything about the technology and the ways that they're using this for simply coming together purely for sex, and that's it. That's all you got is that right there. Now, these other things are part of marriage, and so if you, depending on how you want to, you know, order these, but just to, to prove the point that I'm getting at here, this is what our culture, you know, tries, tries to do. Okay, and look, I, can't, I could probably balance it perfectly if I worked at it, but that's kind of the point that I'm making. Is it no wonder when you have the disnification of what love and marriage is all about and girls and boys grow up thinking it's all about hormones and sex and feelings and that's the essence of it, that's the foundation of it, and it may or may not include these other things, why it's so teeter-tottery and why so many people end up disappointed and disenfranchised with their marriage, thinking it's not what I thought it was. Where's the sunset? Where's the beach? And where's the perfect man looking at me, glowing all the time? It's not that, is it? Real marriage. And we got to tell our young people that. And not to overly sell what that experience is all about. All right. I'll just leave that there for now, okay? Actually, if I'm going to teach biblically, and just in case somebody, let me, they can Photoshop that and say, look how Pastor Steve thinks marriage is all about, upside down. Don't want that, okay? This is a big problem, huge problem today. And it's a huge problem, you would say, oh, those crazy worldly sinners. No, it is a problem in the church. An example of this, there, there are single Christians, who their, their favorite verse in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 7, 9. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so they connect with somebody that they feel attraction to. There's a, there's a power there. There's a draw there. There's something, oh, right? And they say to themselves, hey, you know what? It's better to marry than to burn with passion. And so they validate or justify marrying somebody purely on the basis of the feeling, on the emotion, the power, the attraction, something like that. And uh, that's a problem. And one of the reasons that's a problem is that for most men, we begin burning with passion around seventh grade, Right? If I was to take that verse out of context, it would have validated me marrying half the girls in my junior high. I was burning with passion. I remember hearing a a pastor one time back in my single days. He uh, was talking on the subject and he said, he goes, listen, my wife is smoking hot. There's no issue here with that. He goes, but I just got to tell you, I would not get married for sex. He just said it like that. Now, I'm single, I'm sitting in the crowd, some of you know my sort of story and all of that, and I'm sitting there going, hmm, that is uh, interesting to hear because I've not been so sure about that. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, romance ceases to be a demon when it ceases to be a god. And the Bible celebrates Valentine's. The Bible celebrates romantic love. The Bible celebrates attraction and marriage and all of that, but it doesn't deify it. It doesn't worship it. 
It doesn't force it to carry what it never was designed to carry. And it was never designed to carry a marriage. It can't. Single people, hear me. It can't. Young people, it can't. It won't. And as proof of that, think of all of these beautiful Hollywood types that marry all the time, right? He's beautiful. She's beautiful. They probably come to the marriage bed with tons of experience. And they're married for like three or four months, and then all of a sudden they divorce and everybody shrugs their head. It's just another one like that, right? Sort of the, the, the Kardashian effect, where you think, how can they not work, make this work? Look how beautiful they are. But they get married, and guess what? When you're married to somebody who's as egotistical and selfish and publicity-hogging as you are, that's annoying, right? And they're like, you're drop-dead gorgeous, but you annoy me to death. Proverbs says that, you know, a beautiful woman without discretion is like a, a gold ring in a pig's snout. That's Bible humor right there. <laughs> Singles and young people, remember this. There is a lot of living between the loving. And it's actually the quality of the living that produces the quality of the loving. And this message, really, I'm intending not to give any tips on loving. <laughs> but how do we do the living in a way that enriches and protects the loving? Which is part of God's plan, for sure. So let's talk then about cultivating romance in your marriage. And uh, as most of you know, I am in the early stages in my own marriage. And I don't want anybody here to think that, <laughs> I mean, this is hard to do, frankly, to stand in front of people and say, let's talk about romance and, you know, as if I'm like Mr. Romeo or something. And so I don't want you to get that impression at all. In fact, if you hear the sound of laughter, it's probably Jennifer, my wife, in the back. So, Song of Solomon, it's a book of the Bible. Have you read it? If you haven't, that might be a fun, romantic thing to do on a Valentine's Day with your spouse. Wife, you, re you read the Shulamite uh, verbiage, and husband, you read Solomon. It's, it's, it's the celebration of a marital love between Solomon and his wife, and it describes the longings and the passions and the pleasures of romantic love in, in very poetic and beautiful language. It's very sensual, but it's also very veiled. It's not graphic, it's not exploitive, but it is very, very sensual. And uh, it does so by celebrating, one of the things it does is it's, it shows the difference between men and women in the way that they approach this subject. You see that in the language of the Shulamite woman and what she is saying and longing and praising in Solomon and what Solomon does in his wife as well. And uh, men and women are different, aren't they? I'll get an amen along here somewhere probably, okay? Men and women are different. I thought that's a safe one, isn't it? Boy, are we different. 
And we're different right down to our, to our DNA, and we're very different in the way that we view and experience romantic love. And uh, so this, by definition, is going to require intentionality. Men, you did not marry a woman, and women, you did not marry a man. As much as maybe some of those things would be natural to us, this is a very different creature that we are married to. We have to understand, then, how this woman, and not just women in general, but the particular woman that God has given to me, or husband God has given to me, how are they wired, and what connects with their heart? The Bible teaches this. Here's 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. That text right there is calling husbands to be a student in the home, to be a student of your wife. You be married very long, you ought to have a PhD in your wife. Say, honey, just call me doctor, right? Because I totally understand you. And she'll be like you in kindergarten. Uh, (laughs) You begin to understand me, and the fact that you think you have tells me how much you don't. (laughs) You women are going, he's only been married three years, but he's catching on. (laughs) But the principle goes both ways. Wives, you need to be a student of your husband. How has God made him? What experiences have shaped the way that he thinks and feels? And what connects with him emotionally and romantically and even sexually? Okay? We like to think it's like in the movies where, you know, you look across the room and all of a sudden there's just this, wow, right? And uh, it doesn't work that way. It takes intentionality. So let's talk, first of all, to husbands. Amen, wives? Oh, this is, that was lame, right? Is this a singles conference? I mean, what is going on? There are wives here, right? Should we talk? How many wives think romantic and emotional connection from a husband is important? Can you clap or do something like that? Okay. All right. All right. That that was not bad. Okay. So apparently we have some interest in this. The truth is this is very important to women. Very important. Dare I say, way more important than we husbands begin to realize. Listen to uh, James Dobson writes this about romance in a woman. For a man, romantic experiences with his wife are warm, enjoyable, and memorable, but not necessary. For a woman, they are her lifeblood. Her confidence, her sexual response, and her zest for life are often directly related to those tender moments when she feels deeply loved and cherished by her man. That is why flowers, candy, and cares are more meaningful to her than to him. That is why she is continually trying to pull him out of the television set or the newspaper and not vice versa. This need for romantic love is not some quirk or peculiarity of his wife, as some men think. This is the way women are made. Women are made this way right down to the essence of who they are. God has made women to be primarily responders and receivers. Elizabeth Elliot, Passion and Purity, talks about how women, even down to the way God designed them physically, are receivers. Feminine beauty is very much this way. 
Now, for us men, we would like to think that what really then would, you know, would turn on our wife, why, why not just the sight of my biceps, honey, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> Jennifer, are you here? Doesn't that do it for you right there, right? <laughs> That's why young men, they think it's the biceps, right? So they cut the t-shirts off and they walk around, you know, like, hello, ladies, I'm here, right? And they think it's... All the girls are, oh. <laughs> and the reason we think this is because we are visually oriented, right? So we can assume that women are just wired the same way that we are, and the sight of our biceps, that's all it's going to take here. And yet it couldn't be any more different. Women could not be any more different, sadly. <laughs> C.J. Mahaney, I think he says it well here. He gives us husbands this advice. In order for romance to deepen, you must touch her heart and mind before you touch her body. (laughs) Apparently that touched somebody's heart and mind right there. (laughs) So the question then for us men, if that is true and validated by the women that are here, is how, like, how do we do that, right? So I got a tip for you. If you're married, just take me a second here. It's not your biceps, but women are turned on seeing biceps pushing a vacuum cleaner. I, uh, I read one woman who said that uh, the sound of a vacuum is foreplay, is what she said. Okay, so... Go ahead, man, just take your wife's hand right now, because she's, she's warming up. Just that sound right there. There you go. You're welcome. Okay. You might want to make that your ringtone or something, because... Okay. Now, this is a symbol, this is a symbol of the big point that I'm trying to make here which is women feel a romantic connection when their husbands serve them, okay? Serve them. Now, let's, again, step back a second. Let's think theologically about this. Why do you suppose God made women to respond to service? Again, what's the paradigm? Jesus in the church. In that paradigm, the wife is the church. And what enlivens the church what breathes life into the church it is the thought and the celebration that jesus has done what for us served us why do we have the lord's supper why did jesus say take this over and over and over again because that cup and that bread 
reminds us of the amazing sacrifice that Jesus did for us. And there's, this, there's something that God does through the Lord's Supper in the church. It breathes life into the congregation and it breathes life into the Christian who properly reflects upon the amazing sacrifice that Jesus did for us. And so then guess what? Wives, being the church in that role, have been made by God to respond and to feel connection with their husbands when we serve them. And we look at the service of Jesus to the church, it was an extravagant service. It was an unmerited service. It wasn't because we were beautiful, it was because he loved us that he served us. And so husbands, when we similarly serve our wives, it does something in their heart. They see us sacrificing for them, and it fires them up. Here's Song of Solomon 7.1. How beautiful are your feet in sandals. Try that tonight, husband. Okay? <laughs> oh, sweetheart, your feet. I have a foot fetish. I'm thinking about you with your foot in a sandal right now and oh, baby. Right? Okay. What is it actually saying? In that culture, when were you near feet in sandals? It's when you're getting down and you're washing their feet, right? Solomon here now in a position of service to his wife, washing her feet. And when we wash our wives' feet, something happens in their hearts. And it's powerful. It's romantic. It's even sexual. I had my small group at my house Sunday night, and we were watching the Super Bowl, and I don't know, timeout or halftime or something. I, I said, hey, ladies, I'm preaching on romantic love next weekend. I could use a little bit of material here. I said, like, what, for you ladies in the group, what, what, what kind of does it for you? What's romantic for you? And almost every single thing that they said was something where their husband did something for them that was unexpected, that they don't like to do. One wife said, when he buys the tickets online for the plane and the rental or whatever, I hate all of that stuff. And when he does it, oh boy. Okay, that does it for her. So I'd be buying tickets and colonel cars and canceling them right away. But, <laughs> but when we serve our wives surprisingly and inconveniently, Bill Hybels writes about this in, in, in uh, a book I read years ago. He said, you know, because he, he's a pastor and he would do these funerals, right? And so there's always flowers at the funeral. So he'd gather up a bunch of flowers and take them home to his wife, okay? And say, here, honey, here you go. And his wife was always like, eh. And finally, he's like, hey, what's the problem, man? These are beautiful flowers. She goes, you got them for free from the funeral you did. And he's like, what do you want me to do? I mean, you want me to... There's not a floral shop anywhere nearby. You want me to go out of the way and like pay for flowers when I can get them for free from the church? That's exactly what she wanted him to do, right? (laughs) Server. Secondly is to listen to her. Listen to her. And guys, we're not good at this naturally, are we? Did you just hear what I said? All right. (laughs) Listen to her. One of the cues that I'm losing romantic traction with Jennifer is when she has to say, are you listening to me? Like, chill in the air. Very chill. Yeah. That's not good, right? That's not good. 
Many of us uh, are probably going to have some time with our wives maybe tonight. It's Valentine's Day. Could I encourage you to maybe think about some questions, maybe even write them out on a piece of paper. What are some things about your wife? What are some questions that could draw her feelings out? What she's struggling with, what she's happy about, what she's fearful of. What are some ways that maybe I can be a better husband to you? Things like that. And maybe you've been married a long time, you're like, oh, that'd be so silly if I pulled out a list, piece of paper with questions that I thought in advance to ask her so I could know her better than I do now. We're so beyond that. Try it, okay? And then listen, actually listen to her. What do we know about women? They love to talk with each other, right? They share back and forth. That connects them emotionally with their, with their girlfriends. And men, for us, it's the same with them. When they know that we're listening, when we can understand, we enter into their emotional world, which for men is like, you know, terrifying, right? But as we do that, it builds bridges with them, connections with them. Listen. Third is to affirm her, okay? Affirm her. Back to Song of Solomon. You, you can't read Song of Solomon without being impressed with the affirmation that these two lovers are throwing at one another. In fact, uh, say what you want about Solomon, but he convinced a thousand women to marry him. Okay? He must have been really good with words. And you read Song of Solomon, and you can see why a thousand women are standing in line, I'll marry you! <laughs> Will you say things like that about me? Because I'd be happy to marry you if you're going to. Like what? Here's, here's Solomon to his wife. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. And now we get into some cultural things, so bear it in mind. Your hair is like a flock of goats. <laughs> leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn hues that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not among them has lost its young. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Every woman right now is going, <gasps> right? Why? Because that language connects with their heart, right? And we, men, we tend to get what we give. Whatever we affirm is what we tend to give back. Critical words, criticizing our wives, tends to cement those things in their heart. But positive encouragement and affirmation affirms positive things, and the wise husband will choose wisely. So here's what Pastor Steve is saying. Serve her, listen to her, affirm her. Do that all day today at least, and happy Valentine's Day, okay? Now, that's good for more than just Valentine's Day, of course, but you know what I mean. All right, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about wives to husbands, okay? Wives to husbands, cultivating romance with your husband. And I'm not going to spend as much time on this because, frankly, we are much more simple. <laughs> All it takes for us to get the love and feeling is for you to look at us the right way, frankly. So wives... Your responsibility is to model the church to Jesus. That's the paradigm, right? So 
I say from this that there is little that is needed for us to have romantic love stirred in our hearts, but there are many, many things that you can do to freeze it. So how should the church relate to Jesus? I would describe three things that the church should do, and then I'm going to correlate that to wives. Number one, we should celebrate a sacrifice, sacrifices. We should respectfully submit to him, and we need to make it clear that Christ has the first place in our heart. Okay? Everybody in agreement? The church to Jesus ought to do those three things. All right? So wives then, this is the paradigm, and the same three things work. This is how God has made us. Celebrate his sacrifices. Jesus said, I want you to take communion, and even baptism is a certain kind of declaration and celebration of what Jesus has done. Do that until I come back. Celebrate my sacrifice. Now, it's different for us because we men are needy. Jesus is not. We are. But the model applies. And most men can very quickly feel taken advantage of when there is a sense of entitlement from the wife and there is a lacking of appreciation. Wives, we love to be acknowledged. We love to be acknowledged. When we feel that kind of affirmation from you, it's powerful in our hearts. So like words like thank you. Can we say thank you too much in marriage? I don't think so. Courtesy, thank you. Think about things that he is doing, big and small, that help and minister and support you. Express appreciation for those things. Use your words to do it. I wrote it this way. When a guy believes his wife thinks he's the bomb, that's very romantic to us. And indeed it is. Celebrate your husband. And maybe he's doing the same thing he's done for 25 years. Keep celebrating it. It means a lot to us. Secondly, the church is to respectfully submit to Jesus. And if you read through the New Testament, the most repeated admonition to wives is that they are to be respectful and submissive to their husbands. I take from that that the biggest challenge for wives is to be respectful and submissive to their husbands. Otherwise, why would it be repeated over and over again? And the reason it's so important is that because a wife that is subverting her husband's rightful place of authority and leadership uh, is distorting the picture that marriage is intended to be. Does the church ever seek to usurp Jesus as rightful place as Lord of the church? No. Does the church talk bad about him behind his back saying, ah, I wish somebody else was in charge around here? Well, enough about Jesus. How about somebody else around here? No, the church can't do that, won't do that. There is something very demasculating about a wife who controls or manipulates her husband. You need to let him lead. Okay? You might be smarter than him, you might be more capable than him, probably are, but God has called him to take leadership. Celebrate the little baby steps. Maybe you're like, man, I wish he would. He just doesn't. Affirm him in the little things and see what God might grow in him. This is his calling. And I think this is more than just what you do. This is attitude and this is tone. Have you ever been around a couple where you hear the, the tone of the wife as she talks to her husband, and you just, it, just sort of, it just bleeds disrespect. And then you're around a, a, a good marriage, and you can just tell by the way that the wife looks at the husband when he's talking. I always find that to be a good sign. Does she look at him when he's talking? Is there a sense of respect that is given to him? 
And you might be like, you know what? I'd respect him if he was more respectable. And those good marriages you're talking about, those guys are awesome, and my old husband's lame. Listen, that woman that you're admiring the way that she treats her husband, she's married to a sinner too, just like you are. And if you were married to him, you'd find all kinds of things about him that you don't like. But she's been able to respect and love the sinner that God put over her. And the same way that you're called to do the same. And that is not easy. I'm not up here saying, hey man, dude, this is, this is so easy. It's not. But that's the picture. And as the marriage does that, it builds emotional connections between the husband and the wife. It means so much to the husbands. Third, make it clear that he's your first love. Jesus admonishes the church at Re- in, in Revelation 2, church at Ephesus. He admonishes them. He says, you have for- I hold this against you. You have forgotten your first love. And who is the first love of the church? It is Jesus. And in marriage, wives, your calling is to make it clear to your husband that in your heart, he has the number one place. He is the highest place of affection. There's a well-known marriage book called Love and Respect, and in there it makes the point that Eve had paradise, but she wanted more. And this is a chronic challenge and problem, wives, is discontentment. Discontent with your body, discontent with your house, discontent with your car, discontent with your husband or your whatever, but husbands often bear the brunt of this. And every husband is a sinner, And every husband, no matter who you marry, is going to be a disappointment on some level. And that is not the issue. The issue is you holding in your heart him and not allowing discontentment or comparison with some other woman and who she's married to or whatever to steal your joy. Don't let it happen. I would encourage you, listen to your words. How do you talk about him when he's not around? What do you say about him with your friends when you're out with your girlfriends? What's the tone that you have with your hairdresser? How do you talk about him with your mom? How do you talk about him with the kids if you have kids? And what I'm saying is your words, your tone, your attitude towards him should indicate to him that he is number one in your heart. You look at the Song of Solomon she talks about him way better than he was. <laughs> and I take from that, and he, her as well. There's no flaw in you. Really? She was the one woman who's ever lived and never had a pimple, no mole anywhere, you know, like seriously? No, what is that? That is love is sort of blind. Apparently, lovers can speak with some exaggeration about the other out of love. And here's the way this works. When a husband senses that his wife thinks She's number, or that his wife has him number one in, in her, her heart. That stirs up love in his heart towards her. And now he's like, where's the vacuum? Oh, here it is right here, right? And he's over here doing it like this, right? And she's going, look at those biceps pushing that <laughs> vacuum cleaner, right? And he's like, yes. And she's like, oh, baby, let me love you now. And so then that stirs, and you get this cycle going. A healthy marriage has a cycle, and a healthy gospel marriage is going to have all kinds of brokenness in that, and forgiveness, and clunkiness, and mistakes, and failures, and words that were said that shouldn't, and words that should have been said that weren't. And don't imagine, again, young people, that this is some kind of panacea. It is not. But the gospel applied and the gospel lived out in the marriage 
allows both the husband and the wife to be blessed. And that's what God intends for our marriages. Our time is up. I hope this helps. A final word from Song of Solomon on this Valentine's Day. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Amen.